Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I find myself reading quite a bit these days, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. Lately, I've been reading a lot of Bertrand Russell one of the great philosophers of our time. And I just want to put this out there. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape Podcast. Guy Dummy, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. In just a few minutes, we'll be joined by Dan Greenhouse, the chief strategist at Solos Alternative Asset Management. Dig him. But listen to this for a second. Indulge me, and I promise I won't talk anymore. The will to doubt. The will to doubt. Bertrand Russell. Here we go. None of our beliefs are quite true. All have at least a vagueness and error. The methods of increasing the degree of truth in our beliefs are well known. They consist in hearing all sides, trying to ascertain all the relevant facts, and controlling our inherent bias. So what does that mean, Dan Nathan? It means, yes, we're all somewhat dogmatic. We all have our biases, and I'm trying to take in all sides But you know what? Bertrand Russell said something else, Dan Nathan. I want to read this to you as well. The whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubt. I like to think I'm one of the wiser people that are full of doubt, but there are a lot of fools and fanatics out there right now that think, man, party on, the bottoms are in, and here we go. And I'm thinking maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here is the shepherd. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm doing? And I'm trying to be the shepherd here. I see what you're doing here. I'm just going to bring you a little of the philosophy of jewels here. I mean, listen, we all have our dogma. And you know, it's funny. I think last week we all got a little hopped up here. What was the theme? I'm not leaving, Danny. I think you were in my camp. The one thing I'll just say about trading, about digging in, about investments that go the wrong way and they turn into something they're not meant to be. I have a little situation like that with the Tesla here right now. Sometimes though, the best trades are really born out of just getting it really wrong right out of the gate. And again, who knows what entry points, sizing, diversification, these are all things that we talk about, being good investors, being good traders. Sometimes things have to go pear-shaped to get things right. I feel like we're kind of at that moment. And I think the churn that we've 
seen in the markets, I think the fact that we've seen the VIX hold in here, the fact that rates have actually been going in, the dollar has been rallying a little bit, and the fact that the stocks have been going higher, that actually doesn't make me want to change my tune right now. The thing about the markets, you get a daily report card. And doing that in this type of market is very difficult. So when you take a step back, and that's really what we try to do here, we're not trying to call the days, the weeks necessarily, or even the months, maybe quarters, maybe the year of what's happening here. And we said last Thursday, as we were on the eve of Google, Amazon, and Apple all reporting, giving us a better look, and they didn't do anything, I think, in either direction to really convince bears to be more bearish or bulls to be more bullish. But in doing that, we've kind of round trip down 2 or 3% from that moment. It's hard to say if we've seen the highs of this cycle or not, but here's one really interesting thing, and I've been listening to some of these earnings calls. The best companies, the best CEOs, and the best investment managers are the ones that don't start out by blaming the Fed or blaming rates. These are the ones that adjust to the current situation. And all we're trying to do here, I mean, you don't listen to the, the CEOs, these Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, they may say, we've seen the Fed action and we're taking action, but they don't blame the Fed or devolve into that. And the same with portfolio managers in their letters. They, don't, they just kind of react to it. And all we're trying to do is to help people understand what you're given and how to react to it. And I think you know, at least for me, that's what I'm passionate about. And yes, you're going to be wrong, maybe in long term, certainly going to be wrong at times in the short term. But all we're doing is trying to get people to think the right way. This week, you mentioned odd price action. What I saw this week specifically reminded me of what I saw back in the middle of June when the VIX at the time was trading around 34 and a half. And we said some of the intraday moves that we were seeing led us to believe that a short-term bottom was in. And as it turns out, that was correct. The market rallied some 17% off those lows. It happened again in October. We saw two or three days where you had crazy intraday swings. Again, the VIX was around 34 and a half, and that proved to be a short-term bottom. The market in October rallied about 18 or so percent into December. I mentioned that because this week we've seen some crazy intraday moves. Go back over the last few days and take a look. We also saw a VIX that sort of troughed around 18 I would submit, and if I'm wrong, we'll come back to this and we'll have the conversation, but I think this is going to be the week that we look back on a few weeks from now and say that was the exact same thing we saw in June and October except opposite, whereas those provided you a great opportunity to buy stocks. I think this week has given you a wonderful opportunity to sell stocks. I think we're going to see the quality companies either stay flat and maybe on the margin, that'll be outperforming, obviously, kind of these lower quality companies. When you see things like the Bed Bath Beyond occur, where the stock goes up 100% and then proceeds to trade down 50% based on a death spiral convert that they issued just to stay alive, that literally makes the equity worth zero. When you see stocks trade up into their quarterly reporting, like in a firm, yeah, it's a $4 billion company who wants to talk about it and buy now, pay later, trade up from 13 to 23 and then right back to 13 again. When you see these start, you'll realize these aren't long-term holds. It's not where you want to put your money in. Dan and I were talking right before this podcast, and he was buying Google on this nonsense sell-off related to their barred AI, which got some word wrong and the stock traded down, whatever excuse to sell off. But the point is that those are the companies you want to buy on the dips are these quality companies. The ones you don't and you want to chase are these shitty companies. So it's really becoming clear to me. 
you know, it's funny. There's also just a lot of corporate mumbo jumbo here. And I'll just use the example at Disney. Disney's had this huge run. It rallied from the low 80s to right before the print to $111. So last night, the stock was trading at 117 in the aftermarket, cost cuts, all the sorts of stuff that you'd want to hear out of a new, and I'm going to call him a new CEO because Bob Iger is back. And the stock right now, as we record into the close on Thursday afternoon, is now unchanged down a little bit on the day. So that felt like a bit of a blow off top. I think we're seeing that in some other stocks. There's just a handful that are still holding in here. I think Tesla has had a tremendous psychological impact on a lot of investors. And when you think about some of the goofiness that we've seen in crypto over the last few weeks, these meme stocks, as you just mentioned, some of this non-profitable stuff. And I would add, Dan, a personal financial impact as well. Please keep going. (laughs) Yeah, no, for both of us. But to your point about the buy now, pay later, Coinbase is down $10 today. It's down 13.5% or so, basically taking out all the silliness from the last week or so. So I think that the mood changed just a little bit in the last week. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that Fed Chair Powell said twice and the algos didn't believe him. And then even the next day when investors had the time to digest what he said, didn't believe him because they bought stocks. He said, if we see these inflationary readings start to pick up, which they have, they're going to keep rates higher for longer. And that's the thing that to me almost emboldens me that for whatever reason, people were piling into stocks as he said that two times over the last week and a half. There's still this belief out there, and I don't know where it comes from, but I think the back half of this year, there's going to be Fed rate cuts. And Danny has said this, I've said it, Dan, you've mentioned it as well. If in fact that's the case, trust me when I tell you, the environment won't be particularly good to own stocks. People might get all jazzed up that the Fed has their back, but for them to cut rates in the back half of this year, something has to have broken, number one. And number two, again, I am no fan of the Federal Reserve. I think we all know that by now. But I will say this, their language has been steadfast. They have been speaking with a singular voice now for months, and their want to knock down inflation, I think, is steadfast and earnest. I don't think they're going anywhere. And I'll tell you this, February 14th, Valentine's Day, Tuesday of next week, CPI comes out. You better pray that that number is soft because anything with just a hint of the reacceleration of inflation, and there's going to be a problem in the equity market, Danny. Even if there is a hint, even if it does come off a little bit, the CPI, is that a reason to rally the market further from here, I guess? And I'm just annoyed at this point with believing a guy, when I say believing or trusting the census of the guy who said inflation was transitory and now saying that he hasn't seen financial conditions ease. I don't know what he was looking at. But anyway, that aside, you have to manage your book the best you can with the information that's out there. But there's massive rate option bets that have been going on the last few days. Someone put on a multi-hundred million dollar bet about a 6% terminal rate in the Fed funds and so forth. So I was under the impression coming into this year that maybe they get to 5%, maybe even not. Maybe that's changed a little bit. And I know Fed fund futures are actually saying that a little bit now. Terminal rates are moving higher, that the Fed would start cutting. But Guy, you're absolutely right. If the Fed starts to cut any point this year, something has happened because you're getting pretty good economic growth still. And there's a great article today on Bloomberg about this rolling recession, which I think is the best way to kind of describe it. Housing has gone through at least the first part of recession 12 to 18 months ago. This kind of began for them. Then it rolled into goods. Services have been strong, offsetting that. What's next? So it's going to be really interesting how this thing plays out over time. But at some point, this Fed speak moves to the backdrop and fundamentals take over. And that's 
why I continue to be bearish here on the overall markets is just valuation, the overbought of this market. And the last thing I'll say is that every technical factor now has moved. The AAII, the bull bear index, everything is telling you those may not be right on day one, but within a week or so, those are only set up to be right on the money. The AAII readings that came out this week, the most bullish since I want to say December of 21. If I'm wrong, please add me on Twitter, but I think that's accurate. And again, valuations do matter. Let's just play the math game real quick here. When the S&P 500 was trading 4150 or thereabouts, if you were to divide that by 18, in other words, you're saying, you know what, I'll put an 18 multiple on that. That assumes earnings were $231 for the S&P 500. We have had multiple people come on this podcast, multiple people come on the network and talk about 231 being a pipe dream for the number in terms of earnings. Quite frankly, it's probably closer to 200. So here's what I will say. Earnings under that backdrop, the 231 that I just gave you is a probably about 13% or so inflated. And oh, by the way, an 18 multiple in this environment is probably two turns more expensive than it should be. So you start again doing the math in this environment with rates being here, with all the things we're hearing out of companies and all different verticals and all different industries about layoffs and slowdowns and margin compressions. And there's no way you should be paying $18 for a dollar worth of earnings closer to 16 and earnings are coming down. We can do the math ourselves, but 4150 is too expensive in the S&P. Well, here's the other thing, right? So we tracked John Butters over at FactSite, his Earnings Insight blog. We had him on a market call yesterday, Guy, where we were talking about the average that most strategists one year out overestimate S&P earnings. And it's between, I don't know, 7 and 8% or so. So let's just assume that on average... You take 18 bucks off your 231 right here. Now that's coming down already. Okay. So here we are in early February. If you have yourself down, let's call it 10% or so, you have 205 bucks in earnings mm -hmm. or something like that. And you tell me where bear markets troth. It's not 18 times. If I'm just looking at the bond market and I'm not looking at the equity market, I'm seeing a yield curve where the two year and the 10 year 85 basis points inverted give or take a basis point, the highest since the 1980s, I would tell you without knowing anything that the stock market was much lower because the bond market is always ahead of the stock market. And I said this for the last six weeks, you don't want 10-year yields moving like this lower. You want them actually moving a little bit higher. That would tell you that the belief is longer term that the growth is going to be there. And if it's not, to your point, Dan, the market is just way too expensive. And it wouldn't be expensive if you thought that this was a trough. But again, 13 years of printing easy money, Fed having your back, it's over. We're just now getting the lag effect of 450 basis points of rate hikes, soon to be 475, and then 500 basis points, which equals 5% coming. So we're starting to lag that now. It's coming into play. We're going to anniversary those hikes. I just think it does not paint a pretty picture here. No, I don't think so either. And I'm glad you brought up the yield curve because we have been talking about it on this show seemingly forever. And we have stated a number of times over the last few months that the twos, tens, we're going to invert to the tune of 1%. I don't know what the number's going to be to get us there, but that three and a half, four and a half in terms of the spread between the two 
is starting to make a lot of sense. And you bring up a great point. Bond volatility is back yet again. And bond volatility has been the precursor to equity volatility a number of times over the last 15 or so months, Dan. Yeah. And I'll just mention this. There was a time not so long ago, we were saying the S&P is up 10% on the year. The NASDAQ's up 17% on the year. Well, here we are right now. It's about six and a half percent. When you think about a VIX, like we just mentioned at 20, we think about crude ticking up higher. We think about that jobs report that we had last week. You think about yields moving higher. No shortage of things that we can focus on here. If we get to Feb 14 and we have a higher than a expected print in that CPI, I think we have an S&P that's probably unchanged on the year by the 1st of March or some point in early March. And then all bets are off at that point because I think there's so many bulls were like, listen, man, we've been too bearish for too long. And I mean, when we say we, I mean everybody. Sentiment got really, really bad here. And all of a sudden, though, at that point, if we're unchanged on the year, there's just lots of wood to chop to the downside here. If you think about the S&P 500, that 3,800 cluster that we were hanging out towards the end of December, that's going to be coming to a theater near you. Listen, we talked about this. People entered the year underweight tech, too short, obviously with what's happened too short on the wrong side of the boat, so to speak. It feels like those things have now overcorrected themselves to the other side. So who is the incremental buyer of stocks here? So it feels exhausted. And that's not just because I'm bearish and I, I'm willing it to go down. It just feels exhausted at this point. So find me an incremental buyer or reason to buy the tape. And again, Dan, to obsess on this CPI number again on Valentine's Day, what if it's lower than expected? How much rally is there even in the market? I feel like it's a sell on the news regardless of what it's going to be. I want to say one other thing, which I have to mention because I make fun of Robinhood all the time because I don't know, if it's not a good segue to it, but the fact that Robinhood in December, turns out when they reported that they lost $57 million on a stock who had a market cap of $50 million is Cosmo Health because they were unable to process a one for 25 reverse split in the company when they announced it on a Thursday and stock opened on a Friday. I will add that Schwab and Ameritrade both did not let the stock trade that day because those shares were not delivered. And what does this Cosmos do on Monday? They do a large stock offering. So let's talk about a Jimmy Jam or whatever. Does it have an impact on most people out there? No, but Robinhood, how many times can you get fined for not having system controls? How many times can you pretend to operate it as a broker, but just try to shadow as a tech company? So again, it's just frustrating for me. I'm not upset about it because Robinhood is the one that ate it. But Vlad Tenev, once again, we're very disappointed. You know what we're going to do? We're not going to pay ourselves bonuses this year. I had to get that off my chest because it's just amazing to me the controls or the lack of controls that Robinhood has in place there. A mid-podcast rot, as it were. And if you want to get a little <laughs> granular here, stocks do get cheap. And we talked about it at the time. When NVIDIA got down to the low 100s, I'm going to suggest we nailed the bottom because we didn't. We talked about it. It was at a reasonable valuation. NVIDIA now has rallied over 100% from those recent lows, number one. It's now north of half a trillion dollar market cap yet again. It is currently trading close to 19 times revenues, north of 50 times expected earnings. It went from a fairly valued stock, seemingly overnight, to yet again a ridiculously expensive stock. They report on February 22nd. You talk about rabbits and hats and pulling stuff out of the bag. They better pull rabbit out of the hat because so much of this rally has been predicated, in my opinion, on rates going low to a certain extent. The move is over. Taiwan Semi told us good things for the back half of the year. NVIDIA dominates in certain things. And oh, by the way, this chat GBT thing is powered by NVIDIA. GBT. Man, that's a lot of hopium shit in one name. That, to me, is the epitome of a great company that's gotten from cheap 
to extraordinarily expensive in a short period right, of time. All right, so let's talk about this chat GPT. Okay, so two consecutive days this week, Microsoft holds its open AI day to kind of roll out how they're going to integrate this chat bot into their Bing. It goes really well. It's well-received by the street. Investors bid this thing up, like literally 10%. This is a $2 trillion market cap company. On the flip side, Alphabet, they do their BARD. That's their chat bot. They are obviously the dominant player in search. They have a little bit of a snafu, and the stock sells off 10%. Okay, so think about this. To me, this is how you kind of have to buy things. You have to buy them coming your way. And when we think about valuation, and again, there might be some massive secular headwind coming for Google. They own all the market share here, and Microsoft sees a great opportunity here. But I got Google trading about 15 times next year's expected earnings and sales growth of double digits. I don't see any margin pressure right here, right now. The stock is well below its 52-week highs of 143. It's now trading at 94 and a half. I want to buy that stock as it's coming my way. And you know what I did today? As I bought it at $94, I actually put on a put spread in Microsoft, the stock that had rallied 10%. So to me, I think there's going to be plenty of opportunities. And to your point, Danny, sooner or later, we're going to stop talking about the Fed. And now we're going to pick stocks. And you've been saying this for a while here. And I think from a trading perspective, there's going to be plenty of opportunities. And I think there's ways to leg into longs here. For sure. And I don't really track the tech stuff like you do as far as AI. And I know Guy doesn't either. And like I said, at the top of the show here, when Google was presenting this BARD, as they call it, and they tried to get it to do something, it mispronounced a word, whatever, and stocks sold off. I don't know what that market cap equivalent was, Dan, at that point. It's just absurd. But at the same time, these things are running up in anticipation of, quote, AI day. So again, that tells you that there's still froth in the market when stocks trade up on something like that and then proceed to trade down on it. So again, I think you're right. I think that was a great buying opportunity for you to pick that thing up in the download. But Guy, we got to move on to China here because- y Yes. Yes. I'm waiting for you. Uh, first of all, okay, so here you go. Chinese should not be floating spy balloons over continental United States, number one. Yes, absolutely wrong thing to do. But what I find amusing, and the irony is not lost on me, the people out there that are so exercised by these Chinese spy balloons, and who even really knows what the fuck it was, they're the same people that will then go on TikTok and put out videos of the Chinese spy balloons. I mean, is it not lost on them that the great listening spy devices in our lifetime <laughs> is in the palm of their hand in the form of TikTok? So lighten up on the fucking balloon, number one. But don't lighten up on the fact that there is clearly something going on with China right now. They are clearly pushing the envelope. And I've said it a number of times, the geopolitical risk out there vis-a-vis -vis China, potentially China-Taiwan, should not be underestimated because, as Dan said earlier, it's coming to a theater near you. Yeah, after watching the State of the Union and how divided the parties are, obviously, they, have, they had a resolution in the House basically condemning the Chinese balloon. The vote was 419 to zero. So we talked about this coming into the year. What are the risks out there? It's really the only bipartisan thing. And Biden pounded on made in America and bring it back and all that stuff. And every, that was the standing room only for those type of things. So I think it's going to get worse. And I just don't think any of this geopolitical stuff is really priced into the market at all. So something to definitely keep an eye on. 
I would just say this. I mean, the balloon thing was kind of dumb. We did have to talk about it one night on Fast Money. I think it's interesting that it became very partisan. And when you think about this, I think it was revealed over the last week that there were three instances where this happened during the prior administration. We didn't know about it or we weren't able to detect it or whatever would happen. I mean, it is what it is. I just think it puts a finer point on the fact that we are in a hot economic war with China. They are our rivals. And look at some of the actions that we have taken, both administrations over the last five or six years, starting with that tariff war, those tariffs are still on Chinese exports. We have banned the sale of advanced trips from our companies to China. I mean, we keep ratcheting this thing up. And I think to bring it back to TikTok, it's kind of funny because this was something, again, in the prior administration threatening to ban that thing years ago. It didn't happen. I think we would have, I think I've said this before, a Jan 6 sort of event on the Capitol by teenage girls in this country if it were banned. But that's low-hanging fruit here. The last piece of this, I don't even think in 2023, we have to see any sort of aggression with Taiwan. We can just see a lot of jawboning, but think about this. Think about U.S. multinationals, and we've talked about Tesla. We've talked about Apple. You saw that Apple's sales were down, I think, close to 9% in China in Q4. They're discounting phones. No, well, look what Tesla's doing. They're discounting the hell out of cars. And so if the Chinese really want to rattle sabers, Mm -hmm. right? Think about our reliance on their consumers for those two companies for their goods. Think about our reliance on their workers to manufacture those goods. In Tesla's case, think about the reliance on rare earth materials to make the batteries that go in their goods in a place where they have tremendous competition. They're less than 10% of the market share of EVs in China. So the nationalistic fervor that probably comes first for U.S. products and U.S. multinationals I think is a far bigger threat to the global economy than what might happen if the Chinese do some sort of embargo or something like that with Taiwan. So it's interesting you use the word rival. The great boy George from, what was the name of that group? From the 80s. Uh, Thank you. You're my lover, not my rival. I hear the word rival, I think of that. It's a great song, by the way, one of the great harmonicas in rock history. Let me say this. It's interesting you use the word rival. I think the French are our rivals. I think the the Germans... I think the Chinese are our adversary. It might be somewhat nuanced, but it's important. I think they view us the same way. To your point, I mean, there is clearly a new Cold War going on. And that, by definition, I think, becomes extraordinarily inflationary. And again, I don't think a, a 19 VIX or even a 20 VIX that is currently trading is pricing any of that in. But it's funny, though. You know, when you think about this, one of the biggest manufacturers of semiconductors, Taiwan Semi, was trading at its lows in February at $60. And here it is, it was almost trading $100 today. So we have stocks in all sorts of geographies and all sorts of businesses that are just not paying attention. That's the thing that I'm just left scratching my head here. How can Taiwan Semi be trading at $100 up from 63 months ago, given what we know is very likely to happen in this economic war that we are in with China? No, it's exactly right. And Taiwan Semi, I think they bought themselves a few months late last year when they effectively said, you know what, we're guiding down for the first half of the year, but we see things picking up. So the market took that as sort of the all clear, buy first, ask questions later. And maybe they're right. I don't know my point, Dan, and Danny was all along has been this. People don't have clarity two days from now. How the F does Taiwan Semi have clarity in the back half of 2023? There's no freaking way. So if you believe they're bullshit, 
I got a bridge to sell you as well. Well, this goes back to the consumer too. I mean, some of the data that we saw from some of these hardware manufacturers and what the chip guys had to say about PCs, I mean, they have fallen off a cliff. And we also saw that smartphones were very weak for Apple's numbers. It was kind of odd. iPads were up pretty nicely. But when you also think about some of the other things that we've heard from companies about the U.S. consumer in particular, we heard it from a gamer AA and some of their peers. We heard it from Chipotle. We've heard it from this bag company, this disaster du jour, this Capri guy. I know that you buy a lot of your ladies' mm. goods there. There's stuff. It's starting to come out about a consumer at a time where we know consumer credit, guy, you mention this all the time, is shooting up and we know that the savings rate's coming down. The reopening trade, I think, obfuscated all this stuff. What is the Goldman Sachs VIP Chinese basket? What's in there? All those things you just mentioned are in there. Your Taiwan semis in there, they're all in there. And again, if you came into the year net short those or not exposed on the long side as a fund manager and you watch these things go up, you have to start to buy these things or your year is over. So I think that's kind of where we are right now. So everything I feel like has overshot. And I could make a bearish claim for every bullish claim that's out there. And most of the bullish stuff is macro. And most of the bearish stuff is fundamental. And I think at the end of the day, fundamentals will matter the most. Earnings matter. I say it all the time. The pillars of the market should be, at least in the stock market, earnings growth, earnings, revenue, and revenue growth. And you just don't have them there that supports the valuations we're currently trading at. And that's not me being bearish all the time. That's just me trying to read the tea leaves. And you have a number of people out there saying the same thing. And I'm certain the rally we've seen since early December has confounded not only me, but many people out there. We've talked to a number of people that said this is the most confusing backdrop, both in terms of the economy and the market that they've seen in their careers. I happen to be one of those people. The clarity that I think I have has not changed. Like my views have not changed despite the fact that the market has rallied significantly. Yeah, yet. and I'll just say this. Keep an eye on these mega cap names. We've spent a lot of time talking about them over the last couple of years, the concentration of these five or six big names. And we just talked about Google a little bit, but Amazon's also down a little more than 10% since it's reported earnings here. Apple feels like it's had a huge run from what, 120 to 150 here. Microsoft has had this epic run. It just kind of gave back a couple percent almost as we were talking here. And the last one, this is going to be the last battle fought, people, is the Tesla. I think it traded as high as 213 today. It's trading 205 as we speak. So I think those stocks have the potential to really lead us to the downside. We did see a rotation. We saw good action in some of these energy names and some of these bank stocks since earnings. But now with two-thirds of S&P earnings in the rearview mirror and all the data that we have here, I think the market pulled forward any excitement about these results and guidance not being as bad as expected. And now I think this is kind of the fun part. This is where we get the S&P unchanged over the next few weeks. I understand that people want to be optimistic. We say it all the time. I do as well. I understand that 99% of the people out there have a vested interest for the market to go higher. I have a vested interest, though, to say and to sort of think about things that a lot of people don't want to bring up, as do you, Danny, and as do you, Dan. We try to sort of read the tea leaves and help you look at the market. Sometimes it's not going to be all that pretty. Sometimes it will be. But in the case we're looking at right now, and Danny, you said this, I think, last week or maybe two weeks or so ago. You said you're as bearish as you've been maybe in your career. I think we had that conversation at a dinner a week or so ago. And I got to tell you something. Given all the things that I see out there, I think you're right to have that view. It's like Glass Joe in that old video game went over the body blow, body blow, body blow. You just take it, take it, take it, and you steadfast and stay in the ring here. But yeah, it's just what I've been talking about today and for the last 
several podcasts that we've had. It's just things don't line up. Where's the incremental buyer to me? They're just not going to be around. And so again, don't measure this in a day, a week or a month, just over time. But the three of us have seen a lot of cycles. And I said this before, and I think I said it when we talked about that I'm very, very bearish. Once you see the end of the world with the front row seat that I got to see along with Porter Vinny and Steve and others in 2008, nine, it's hard not to be cynical, but it's also realizes bad things can happen in the market. And again, this is not that scenario. This is not the global financial crisis. But at the same time, I watched people just ignore fundamentals in the housing market, which is what that sell-off was all about for two to three years. I watched people ignore what was happening in the debt markets for two to three years. We waited, we waited, we were patient, and then we took our shot. But all the incremental information, when you receive incremental information, you can change your positioning accordingly. And so there's been nothing in this market that's happened in the last six weeks that has made me want to, quote, change anything for the most part. I think there's a scenario, though, where we just saw this massive shift in sentiment as the calendar turned. And I just think that if we were to get back and put a little fear in this market, if we were to see a VIX at 30, if we were to see what it looks like or what it feels like with unemployment actually ticking up rather than down, with the CPI numbers going up a little bit. Some of the inflationary readings, maybe crude is back at $85. A whole host of things that actually really were sending stocks lower in 2022. Let's get back there. Let's get to a, a little fear. Dan, you just said it. There's no big short. There's no real systemic risk. Are there potential issues out there on a geopolitical situation like we saw last year at this time? I mean, I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think it sent a lot of risk assets in a lot of different directions here. So if there were something bubbling up with China, might that do the kind of unexpected? All I'm saying is there's no fear in the market right now. We got out of the gates too far. I think a little fear, a little retest, and I think all of us would feel better. I tell you, I'd buy Apple at $125 again. I just bought some Google. There's lots of stocks that I would buy with a longer-term time horizon, but not in this environment. I am going to steal Guy's thunder. He's going to be so angry that I just did this after ah. this. So, Dan, on that point right there, it reminds me of lyrics by a great band called The Birds. Ah. Ah, there is a season turn, turn, turn. And I mentioned the birds because an eagle is a bird, even though it's spelled a different way. And I'm sure Guy can explain why the birds spelled the birds that way. But I think it's time for the Super Bowl preview. And Danny, it hasn't been a great year for you, it's, you know, coming off a great year, sub 500 indeed. But let's get to it. You just played the role of me. Yeah, you I just did it all. It was very nice. Guy, can you answer any of those questions? Why is birds B-Y-R-D? S, do you know have any reason why? They I don't know why, but you're going to educate me. By the way, I don't I know mean, why. Oh, you don't know why either. I'll go to my Google machine. I actually mentioned this earlier. If you're a trial lawyer, the first thing you'd learn is you better know the answer to the question that you <laughs> asked. So clearly, Danny missed that day at law school, but uh, but I will Google it. I missed that part. I was trying to do my guy. I was so excited. Take it away, guy. No, I will take it away. And I'll say this quickly. We have to bring up the fact that gold has sold off recently because both you and I have been steadfast in our belief that the victor in this entire thing is going to be the gold market. Gold probably is off some 80 bucks or so over the last week, and it makes sense to a point. The dollar seems to have found a bit of a bottom, and I think all this Fed rhetoric has spooked some of the gold bills. But I'll tell you that central bank buying continues. The Bank of Japan is not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination and from where I sit, at least, Danny, the gold trade is not over by any stretch of the imagination. 
we were on air last week. It was selling off. I said the thing that did not make sense was why would gold be down if the dovish move was on in the stock market? So a lot of things, remember, we were talking about it didn't make sense. But yeah, listen, it ran $200. Obviously, it's pulled off here a little bit. I think all the geopolitical tensions, and to your point, central bank hoarding of gold, so forth, I think will be very bullish for it. I'm still staying there. I buy on real weakness here, so I, st- I still like it. I just Googled why the birds is spelled with a Y and not an I. It's because it was named after the British term for women. And so they replaced the I with a Y. We got all kinds of science going on here, guys. So that's why. So B-Y-R-D-S to honor British women. And of course, we lost David Crosby, an original member of the aforementioned birds on January 18th. But since you mentioned the birds and you mentioned the Eagles, and by the way, the band Eagles is not the Eagles, it's Eagles. So I'm going to see an Eagles concert. I'm going to see Eagles in concert for you playing our home game. Obviously, this weekend is the Super Bowl. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that if we get docked or what do they call it, Dan, when you get docked? Docked. Yeah, because apparently you can't use it in like advertisements or those types of things. The Eagles have found their way into the Super Bowl. We talked about the Eagles at the beginning of the season. We said they had the best roster in their league. Turned out to be right. Outside of a couple games, they were the class of the league from start to finish. Here they are. Everybody dismissed the Chiefs. Danny, I don't think you were one of those people, but they find themselves back yet again. Andy Reid against Siriano, who I'm no fan of, but I'll tell you this. I think the Eagles are just a better team, and I think the Chiefs, to a certain extent, have sort of skated by. The Eagles have dominated the last few times they played. I think they're going to dominate again. I don't think this is going to be nearly as close a game as the fans in the seats want it to be. Guy, can we wager for the first time? No, never? I don't bet. Please, I want to just I need more action because I think Dan's on my side. I like the Chiefs here. I think this is Andy Reid's moment. He left Philadelphia without a title, 1-1 in Kansas City. The first thing he said on the interview after they beat the Bengals, which they probably shouldn't have, was here I come Philly and so forth. I think the players are rally around him. I just don't bet against people like Patrick Mahomes. It's like betting against Michael Jordan. And I don't care what his ankle is. He was unbelievable, even with that quote, bad ankle. I like the Chiefs in an actually very close game guy. I actually think it will be high scoring. I know the over-under is 51 and the Eagles are giving one and a half in this game. So I'm taking the Chiefs plus one and a half over 51. But I want to say something. Do you remember last year, my mother predicted the exact score of the Super Bowl? Okay. 23 to 20. And I put the bet in for her and then sent her the money. She called me the other day. She doesn't really follow these things. She goes, Danny, the number's 27, 24 in my head. I go, which direction? She goes, I'm not sure. Maybe Chiefs. I go, well, mom, the total on the game is 51. She goes, you have to bet it for me. So it's 50 to 1 to bet that 27, 24 or 25 to 1 if you bet it both ways. So I'm going to put that bet in for her. So she saw 27, 24 guy. And I'm going to say that she saw the Chiefs because it's my mother. So. If Mrs. Moses pulls this off yet again. That would be outrageous. That would be epic. And I got to tell you something. It's not a crazy score. I will say this. Last year, I was shocked. And I was so happy that you had the foresight to put the bet in. Because you'd be beating yourself up the rest of your time on this planet if you didn't, Dan. All right. So just so you know, fan of the pod, a friend of mine, Steve, he bet $1,000, 40 to 1 for the Eagles to win. And here he is on the precipice, on the doorstep. And he also showed me the ticket from the Venetian where back in 2018, he also made a $1,000. Wow. 40 to one bet on the Eagles. So Steve, we're rooting for you, buddy. That's pretty good. I will say this. We're not going to see ads this year from Carvana. We won't see ads from FTX. <laughs> 
I don't think we're going to see an ad from crypto.com. We're going to see a lot of alcohol ads, it appears, and so forth. So always good to want to short the things you see the ads of people to spend money on during the Super Bowl. But we'll see if that's true this year or not. Danny Moses, you did yeoman's work this year in a difficult NFL season. I hear what you're saying here. I'm just saying, Dan, Nathan, I'm glad that it wasn't a head-to-head like we did last year. It saved me the wait for it. Suris. Mm. And when we come back, a conversation with Dan Greenhouse, the chief strategist at Solus Alternative Asset Management. Three Dans and a guy. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Dan Greenhouse is the chief strategist at Solus Alternative Asset Management. Prior to Solus, Mr. Greenhouse served as chief strategist at BTIG, where he was responsible for analyzing economic and market trends and helping clients to formulate investment strategies. Dan, welcome to On the Tape. Before we even get into the meat of the markets conversation, I want you to sort of settle a bit of, not I wouldn't say a dispute, but I think Dan, Nathan, and I have differing views on stock buybacks. And I will tell you, I know you know this, uh, the Biden administration seemed a bit exorcised by Chevron's $75 billion announced buyback, 20% of their market cap. Yet, I didn't hear anything about Facebook's $40 billion stock buyback, a far fewer percentage in terms of market cap, but a significant number nonetheless. Are buybacks bad by definition? So explain to me your view on it, because I know you put something out on Twitter earlier on Wednesday. Yeah, I don't don't understand why any politician should care about buybacks at all. Without wading too much into the politics of it, just strictly speaking, the first point worth making is at the end of the day, a company is worth X. This idea that buybacks are somehow artificially inflating stock prices ignores the fact that A, if a company spends cash on buying back stock, then the value of that company is intrinsically lower because you have a reduced cash balance, so your, your assets are lower. And then the second thing it ignores is that on balance, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, an announced stock buyback just sort of offsets share dilution that would occur from stock options and grants and the other types of things that, that go on um, in corporations. So, so the, the first point to make is that they, they aren't this inherent evil idea that they somehow are 
are portrayed as. And then, but the but really the more important point is at the end of the day, as a corporation, if you don't have anything to do with your money, you're supposed to return it to shareholders. And leaving aside the the specifics of corporate finance theory, I as an investor should largely be indifferent to whether you return it to me in the form of stock buybacks or dividends. And on balance, I think there's no other view that's worth having other than that. Well, you know, it's funny. Guy and I don't have differing opinions. I don't really give a crap about buybacks. I think the the, the partisan commentary on both sides of it is dumb. You know what I mean? So, I, I like it, to me, it shouldn't be a political issue. And if you, you know, we had a conversation on on Fast Money the other night where it's like, you know, at some point, I think it was Tim Seymour said, "Well, you know, if we're just going to nationalize all our," well, I was like, "Well, we have nationalized them, right? If you think about it, almost every major industry, banks and insurance companies, autos, airlines, energy companies from time to time. So I guess it really depends on like where the capital is coming when these companies need a bailout and what's attached to it. And then you think about the trillion dollars that were thrown at our economy during COVID and then go back to 2018 with that tax cut. What did corporations do? They took a trillion dollars, borrowed it from the futures, and they just bought back stock equal to that amount in 2018 and 19. So to me, I don't care about buybacks. I mean, again, I just think it's just a dumb political argument. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'll, I'll admit that there are differences between certain companies doing buybacks and other companies. And, and by, by differences, I mean, politically, there are going to be differences between hypothetically airlines doing buybacks as opposed to Meta, let's say, doing a buyback. But on balance, the, the corporate finance theory should win out every time. I saw you, I want to say, what was it, four or five years ago, we ran into each other. And it's great to finally get you on the tape here. And let, let, By the way, let me interrupt you and tell viewers that you are as nice a guy in person as you seem on the podcast. I appreciate you, well, that. All right, you listen, let's cut the bullshit <laughs> There here. you go. All, you go three, so, all three of you, Vinny and all three. also, are just, just top-notch winners. I appreciate that. And they appreciate that. I know how much they look to you as well. Spending years on the sell side, and then now you've been on the buy side now for eight years. We had privilege of having you and Tony Crescenzi when you're Miller Tayback in our offices. And we really relied on you guys back during crisis. I mean, 2006, seven and eight, nine. And I told this story once before, and we were in a meeting. It was with Tony, you, me, Steve, Vinny, and Porter. And it was literally March 8th, 9th, or 10th of 2009, somewhere literally at the bottom of the market. And Tony had all the housing data because you guys would look at like housing starts and and I'm sure you did the work and, and Tony was talking about it and he no. turned to Steve and he turned to Steve and he said, I gotta tell you, housing starts can't get worse. There's always gonna be some type of demand for housing. And Steve goes, Yeah, you're wrong, and walked out. The market made the low that day. Like things can only go so down so much. So I will always remember that moment and how level headed you are. So let's fast forward now to where you are right now. Give me your daily routine here at Solus. I know what you did on the sell side. Give me kind of what you're doing. It's a lot of the same. I mean, for the view for, for listeners that may not know, Solus is a, a, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund focused on investments up and down the capital structure. And I think certainly post 2009, when our relationship blossomed, let's say, a lot of funds recognize that having someone internally doing the blocking and tackling on the macro side of things can be value-added, not just a luxury. And Solus, I, I would argue, obviously, is one of those funds. And so so I was brought inside to just sort of keep an eye on the book, so to speak, or, or, or make sure that everyone's thinking about things the right way or what management thinks is the right way. Really keep an eye on the, on the consensus. So, so are there areas of, of disagreement between us and consensus from a top-down standpoint? And try to exploit some of those discrepancies in a profitable way over time. And I think that it's been, as, as we've talked about offline, 
it's been a, a tremendous learning experience and an eye-opening one switching over to the buy side because, you know, on the sell side, you do have the luxury of pontificating a lot. And you have to know, it's, as I always said, my job was to know as much as possible about as much as possible. But when you're on the buy side, there's consequences to what you say. And, and being wrong has a numerical value that may or may not result in a higher bonus or a loss of your job. And that is a very clarifying, <laughs> very clarifying uh, change in, in position, but but also one that, that I've enjoyed and I've relished. I was going to say, when you're short on the sell side and wrong, you lose your job. If you're short on the buy side and right, that's great. So one other question, because I know you get immediate feedback when you're the sell side publishing notes, you know, what comes back to you, hate mail, love notes. What if, you know, internally at Solus, I'm sure there's portfolio managers that may disagree with your outlook. I'm just curious how you manage that internally. You just say your piece and let them do what they want, or do you have a say in how the portfolio is shaped? We're a single manager platform. We've basically got one or two guys that run all assets. Uh, we have different pockets of investments, but it's basically a single manager platform, for lack of a better word. And I, I always view my job as sort of a, a, a chief of staff, so to speak, in, in the political world. Here's what I think. Here's what's happening. And, and you know, I don't have final say on the investments, of course. That's for, for the CIO. And all I can do is present the facts as I see them as best as I can and, and let the chips fall where they may. I think where you can have a lot of impact is in working with the individual analysts. We've got a team of, call it 10 analysts, that are siloed off by sector. And I think there's a lot of value to be added with the consumer discretionary analyst, let's say, from providing uh, the, the macro observations from a top-down perspective to complement the bottom-up perspectives. And the energy analyst, we've done a lot of work in the energy space that's been a, a terrific performer for us over the last 12 and 24 months. Uh, the energy analyst and I spend a whole lot of time talking about IMF and, and global demand and those sorts of metrics and how they feed into the types of things that the companies that, that you guys talk about every day are ultimately doing and performing. And I, I think that that complement works pretty well. You can go down to rabbit holes in our world. And it's interesting, specifically over the last four or five months, on one end of the spectrum, you have people talking like, you'd be begging for a recession because what we're looking at right now is late 1920s, 1930s type of stuff. And on the flip side, you have people saying we're on the verge of, if not in the midst of this new bull market that's going to take us well north of 5,000 in the S&P 500. I don't adhere to really either side of those spectrums, but somewhere in the middle lies the truth. How do you look at the world right now? Because it's, it's confusing. At least I'm as confused as I've been in quite some time. You know, it's funny you say that because I am fond of saying that I'm as confused as I've probably ever been in my, in my career, because there is an argument for both. And if, we, if you'll indulge me, let's, let's walk through it. So on the one hand, you start from the premise, and I know this is near and dear to Danny's heart, the Federal Reserve can't hike rates. I'm speaking extemporaneously here. Like the Federal Reserve can hike rates by 500 basis points in a year's time, and there won't be repercussions throughout the economy. It just as a starting point, that's the operating procedure under which you should be looking at. And, and to be clear, you see this idea that the economy is very resilient and all these other adjectives that get thrown around. Yes, if you're looking at the labor market, I, I absolutely thought the labor market would be worse than it is by now. But let's not lose sight of the fact that the housing market is doing quite poorly. Manufacturing has, in a large sense, caught up on the downside. It has at least stopped appreciating and has started declining, depending on how you judge it. Let's use the ISM. So you have two major sectors of the economy that are, that are quite weak. And, and when that's happening, as, as we all talk about every day, and you, you all surely know, traditionally, this is at least associated with a current recession, if not one in, call it three, six, nine, 12 months, whatever it might be. And the yield curve is probably the, the best example of those sort of leading indicators. But then on the other hand, you have 
technical factors at work in, in the market, let's say, that are incredibly encouraging. I think the best one and the most relevant one is the performance relative to the 200-day moving average. I mean, when you look at previous secular bear markets, the mid-1970s, 2002, 2008, you don't get above the 200-day moving average. You just don't. It is the ceiling. The bear market ends when you break above sustainably that level, and it traditionally happens well into the bear market. And so as of yesterday's close, we recall at 5 to 6% above the 200-day moving average, which is a level above the 200-day moving average larger, wider than at any secular bull market we've seen previously. In 2002, for instance, maybe you got above the 200-day the by 2, 2.5% two in, uh, in the spring of 02, but we know the bear market didn't end for another year until the sp spring of 02, really October of, of 2002, March 2003, give or take. In the, in the 70s, it was something similar. The bear market, the one time you went above the 200-day, the market went on for, the bear market went on for another year. So you have these conflicting, the, the, the poor economics outside of labor and the strong technicals in the market that are, that are at work here that, that contribute to the confusion that you are clearly feeling and I'm clearly feeling. And I can make a case for either, why either one is going to win out. And that makes it very, very difficult. What's really amazing to me is that, you know, this market has been for the last several years about immediate gratification and trading on today's news and trying to extrapolate that. Like, it's still not clear if we're going to have a soft landing, a hard landing, or as Torsten Slock said, no landing yesterday. It's really amazing to me. I'm, I'm waiting for this handoff from the obsession with the Fed. And to your point, you can't raise 450 base points and eventually 500 basis points without there being some type of repercussion. It just started. Now it's been 11 months, I guess, since they first started this cycle. But your point you made about being above the 200-day, forget about the charts for a second. I can see that if people believe we're troughing on earnings. But talk about the earnings that have come out here because earnings are not great. Yeah, companies are alive and they're reporting and there's bright spots or green shoots if you want to call them here and there. But for the most part, the market's only getting more expensive every day, not less expensive, not even the parity of keeping up with earnings. So when do you think or what will it be that might cause this thing to reverse course and then be back below the 200 day? I think you guys had John Butters on from facts that maybe yesterday or the day before, and everyone should go listen to that. What I will say is this infatuation with earnings, I think is somewhat misguided. And not that earnings aren't, as my friend Larry Cudlow always liked to say, the mother's milk of stock prices, but the stock market almost always bottoms before earnings do. We're going to have three quarters, at least the consensus right now forecasts three quarters of negative earnings this quarter and then in the first half of 2023. In 2016, we all remember the, the stock market and oil and everything bottomed on, I think it was February 11th, 2016. 2016, EPS did bottom for another quarter or so. In the August 82 bottom, which was the start of the great 1980s bull market, the stock market bottomed in, in, in August, as I just mentioned. EPS didn't bottom until, let's call it a year later in the spring of 83, give or take. And I can go on, but there are other such examples throughout history that say the stock market sniffs out the end, the end of the recession, the end of the bear market, the end of the EPS decline. And if you believe that we're only going to have one or two quarters additional of negative EPS, you can justify the, the move in stock prices and say, okay, we're, we're getting ahead. We don't think it's going to be as bad as the market expects. And therefore, I'm going to start bidding up stock prices. You run into the valuation argument, which is if you're trading and call it 18 times forward earnings or something, you are, for lack of a better word, expensive in a higher interest rate, higher vol environment. And that's a whole separate conversation. But that is the conversation that we kind of have to have because in each of those periods when the stock market, and I'm doing this in air quotes, sniffed out, right? Like a two or three quarter earnings recession, 
Interest rates were low because of you know the Fed and, and doing what they were doing to combat right the economic slowdown. And I guess the point that I would make right here, Dan, is that we have a situation going back to just the you know the, the jobs market. I mean, we are at fifty three year lows. Even if we were to go from three point four percent unemployment to four percent, that is still a really tight jobs market. And then we have wage inflation, and then all of a sudden, I was definitely in team transitory as as far as just kind of the, the fact that we were going to have this mean reversion trade in a lot of industrial commodities and things that spiked early last year and really caused a lot of those inflation fears or the recession fears. But at this point, I feel like with jobs being sticky and wages being sticky, and then maybe a lot of the heavy lifting was done with those inflationary inputs, and we're starting to see some of them pick back up a little bit. Isn't that the thing that kind of gets this soft landing crowd off sides a little bit as we get further into the year? Yeah. But let me start by saying transitory has become something of a dirty word. But the truth is, a lot of this was transitory. Now, was it more transitory than than everybody thought? Absolutely. But if you look at, and I think everybody should know this by now, but if you look at core goods prices in the CPI, what are the prices of goods if you exclude food and energy? They're up 2% year over year. Now, listen, they're way too high. Let's not confuse, and this is a, a, a thing of mine, people talk a lot about growth rates. Let's not forget about the level. Like the eggs that everyone's complaining about are up 78% pre-COVID. They're not coming down anytime soon, or at least don't appear to be coming down. But the rate of change in goods prices is now down to about 2% from, from I think it was north of 12%, something like that. So part of it has been transitory. So I, first point I wanted to make is there's, there's something of a dirty word. You get, you get labeled an idiot if you thought inflation was transitory. But that part of it unquestionably was and is transitory. The problem you have is you, the royal you, have right now, as you mentioned, is, is the strength in the labor market. And, and the best analogy I've been using internally and with ex, ex-clients of mine is if you think about, with, with respect to inflation and this whole debate, like, you know, what is the Fed looking at? Don't they see? Don't they see? But if you think about a person who's, let's say, 20 pounds overweight, and uh, they're, <laughs> Guy and I are shaking our heads, but, but everyone else is raising their hand. But if you think about someone who's, let's use Danny Moses, who may or may not be 20 to 40 pounds overweight. 40? Just go with 20. Okay. All right. I, I'm not on that Ozampic that all these other people are on. We'll so go, right, with, go ahead. So Danny. Danny's 20 pounds overweight. If Danny wants to lose 10 pounds, he's probably going to by Short just Tesla. by ju- <laughs> I, I, I was wondering if we would get through the podcast without talking about Tesla. Because if Danny wanted to lose 10 pounds, not eating the lasagna bolognese and the Snickers bar, just swapping that out for like something normal is probably going to shed five or 10 pounds. I'm making it up, obviously. That's the, that's the transitory weight that Danny's going to lose. If you want to lose another five of the 20 pounds, well, you know, maybe start eating a little healthier or get on the treadmill, you'll lose five more pounds. But how do you lose those last five pounds? That is much more difficult. It's not as simple as just not eating Snickers bar or going for uh, an extra couple of, of steps. You have to work. And that, from the Federal Reserve standpoint, is what they're focused on, that last five pounds. How do I get that out? And that last five pounds is the extremely historical decade-long tightness in the labor market. It's a fascinating conversation because we're at a point now where 50% of the population that pays attention to this stuff is convinced the Federal Reserve is making a mistake by now keeping rates elevated and talking about this higher for longer. The other 50% of the people think the mistake was already made, that I'm one of those people, by the way, years and years ago. So by definition, they can only make a mistake going forward. It's just a question of which one will they make. So, you know, 
how do you think this thing shakes out in terms of the rhetoric, but more importantly, in terms of to some of the things you mentioned, the lag effect that their policies have have had that have not been felt yet in the marketplace. So, so let me associate myself with the group that thinks they made a mistake. I don't think the fifty percent that thinks they didn't make a mistake. I don't know what they're looking at. Uh, buying mortgages alone, like leave everything else alone. But I mean, now you're you're just doing this to piss me off, right? Because now <laughs> you're you're right in my wheelhouse. I mean, buying Apple bonds. I mean, where where is that in their mandate? But okay, since you decided to go there, I just had to opine. But please continue. That's uh, that's a whole other podcast. But but yes, buying mortgage bonds in February and then tightening in March is going to go down as one of the three or four greatest errors in in Federal Reserve history. They held on to the transitory view too long. We've, this is well-trodden territory. We don't need to go over it again. In terms of how it shakes out, I mean, I am a card-carrying and original member of a bear market recession. Uh, this was a view of mine in the summer of 2021. I just, I, I, I didn't know exactly, but, but you could see this coming. Now, the, the debate is much more difficult. You do have things going in your direction. The goods prices have come down, although I, you look at things like used car prices and a couple of other measures, and you can make a case that, that you're going to have a bounce. I mean, I, I don't know if people are aware, but the CPI that come, the next CPI that comes out is going to be 0.5% on the headline, 0.4% of the core. That's like a completely unacceptable level of inflation, especially this far into a so-called disinflation. About the, about the long and variable legs conversation, I mean, part of the reason why I, I had originally felt like this would not go well, although admittedly not until 2023, the, the bear market came much more quickly than I thought, is the idea that monetary policy operates with long and variable eggs. And I'm sure everyone has heard every even close to a co economist come on air here and on CNBC and the like and, and make some comment. This is a little more nuanced than I think people give it credit for. Like on the one hand, the whole reason we talk about financial conditions, and, and what do we mean by financial conditions? We mean credit spreads, we mean stock prices, we mean the dollar, we mean volatility, etc. There's this idea that monetary policy operates with long and variable legs that originates with Milton Friedman on the idea that the, 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 the Fed tightens policy and it takes, let's say, 12 to 18 months to really filter through the economy. Because if you're doing a project, if you're expanding a business, you're going to finish that business before interest rate hikes make no difference to you. If you were hiring someone tomorrow, a rate hike yesterday doesn't really matter. It takes time for it to filter through the economy. However, the reason you talk about financial conditions, the relationship between monetary policy and the economy is not quite so ironclad as some people want to give it credit for. And, and again, I mean, the Fed's hiked about to, by 500 basis points and we're at a 50-year low in the unemployment rate, something clearly it's not as direct as people think. So financial conditions is what you focus on. It, it operates much more quickly. It has a much more uh, immediate effect. And so to your point about this being a, a recession, you have to give the Fed some credit here in the sense that they've been able to hike rates by 500 basis points. They have brought some of the froth, some of it out of the housing market. And they've done every, and we could go on, but they've done all of this without really doing too much damage to the labor market, which does, all else equal to the Torsten Slot comment, raise the odds of a soft landing. I, I don't mean to say it raises it to 80% or 90%, Twice in the last week, Powell has come out and reiterated that he thinks financial conditions are still tight. You just named four things that I can point to that are very loose. Let's start with the credit markets. The high yield market and the investment grade market have rallied, I don't know, four and five percent, you know, respectively already in January. Granted, they were down 15 to 20 percent last year. So that's like a green shoot there. So I can see people kind of getting excited. I think that's a dead cat bounce seasonally coming into starting of the year. But explain that comment because he's not looking at what you just described. And so how do you give him any credit? And again, I don't really pay attention. You have to pay attention to them to manage 
money, obviously, because it's going to have an impact on either end of the spectrum. But how do you make sense of that comment, Dan? With respect to the credit markets, to provide some context, it's a spread product. So so investment grade spreads are about 115, depending on your, your index, about 115 basis points right now, down from 160 basis points. So IG spreads have compressed by about 50 basis points, which is huge. You know, again, I, you're starting at a call at 150 and now you're down to, to 115. That's a, that's, a, that's a big move in IG spreads and even high yield spreads and high yield is less of a, a spread product than, than IG is down sub 400. So your, your OAS, your option adjustment spread at high yield is sub 400. That's, that's not like the tightest level ever, but you're certainly closer to a normal environment than one in which the Fed is combating the highest level of inflation in 40 years. So the, so the credit market is not telling me too dissimilar a story to what the equity market is telling me. In fact, I would argue the credit market has held up better than the equity market, but that's a separate conversation. I don't know what Powell's looking at with respect to financial conditions, because I, like everyone else, would observe that financial conditions have eased since the last time that he spoke. And I think the best explanation I can come up with for why he has made the comments he has made is that he's trying to be sort of a uh, as linear as possible. I'm raising rates. They're going up. The Fed statement itself basically said at least two more rate hikes, and we're going to leave them there for a long period of time. And I'm not going to respond to all the different nonsense in markets that people want me to respond to. I'm just keeping my head down and plowing ahead. And, and I think I am close to what you guys feel that markets in general are probably ignoring to their detriment a lot of that. But but I that's my best explanation for what he's doing. He's just keeping his head down. I want to take a step back because we saw what I think is a precursor for things to come last year, which is the Bank of England. First world countries that all of a sudden have to have fiscal policies that make sense. You know, you can't run deficits forever and all this stuff. We are going to have the same issue, obviously, here with the debt ceiling. But I believe that the Bank of Japan is the canary in the coal mine. Their inability to potentially yield curve control their tenure, if, if inflation does start to rise there, and it is, you know, the yen carry trade, all the things that people know nothing about because most of these traders are new. They haven't seen all these generations that go on. How much do you factor into kind of that macro backdrop? Because it feels to me like that is just something that's going to boil over at some point, whether it's Japan, whether it's us, whether it's England, wherever it's going to come from. But these are first world problems. These aren't third world countries here. First of all, with respect to Solus, like I watch it, but I don't know that the rest of the fund really cares. And I, I don't mean that um, derogatorily. I mean, we manage assets and we're a bottom-up, idiosyncratic investor, whether it's in so-and-so bond or so-and-so equity. This stuff is important, but but it's not really driving. We're not a macro shop, so it's not really driving investment decisions. But that said, I, I agree that given the influx of central banks into any number of markets, that raises the odds that, as we saw with the BOJ or uh, European central banks with various currencies, you, you raise the odds that something goes wrong and there's uh, a misstep that has global repercussions. I, I agree Japan is the canary in the coal mine. I mean, their steadfastness in the face of elevated inflation has been quite impressive. They're the only central bank, uh, developed central bank on the planet that seems to not be acknowledging what's going on more generally. I imagine for most people listening to this, it's akin to worrying about the unfunded liabilities, the, unfu the government's unfunded pension liabilities. Like, it's a thing. And sure, maybe it'll blow us up, but I don't know that I'm going to buy or sell Abbott because of it. Let me ask you a theoretical question. This is something that I struggle with because I'm a big believer in market cycles, allowing the cycles to play out as painful as a portion of them might be. It's just natural. But what we've done over the last 30 years or so, somewhat successfully, I might add, is we've been able to alchemy out certain things. 
But if we can thread this needle, we being, I'm just looking at the United States right now, taking a balance sheet that went from normal balance sheet, maybe three and a half, four trillion dollars, close to 10, rates were at zero for an, an absurd amount of time. If we can somehow normalize rates and reduce our balance sheet without there being any real fundamental harm to both the economy and the market, it's going to empower these people to continue to do the same thing over and over. And it's to give some of these modern monetary theory people who I think are out of their effing minds a leg to stand on. In my opinion, something has to break. I don't want that to happen, but almost by definition, it needs to happen. I think you conflated two things. With respect to MMT- I like conflating, by the way, <laughs> but go ahead. With respect to MMT, I would argue that the experience of 2020 and thereafter has poked a big, big hole in the MMT balloon. The difference between post-COVID, like a lot of people say, why did we have inflation now and we didn't have inflation then? Danny and, and his team and I used to fight about this ad nauseum in the, in the 2010s. The difference between that, then and now is back in 2010, the Federal Reserve just effectively liquefied the banking sector. Give me your treasuries, I'll give you... There's a difference between that and what MMT advocates and what actually happened, which is just the complete and total injection of $5 trillion into people's bank accounts. It's a, a fundamental difference between the two. I would argue with respect to the MMT side of things, and I, I have respect for Stephanie Kelton, among others, as a thinker, but I think the idea has taken a step back in, since, based on what happened in 2020. With respect to the Fed, I, where I would push back on what you said is, I don't think success or not, the idea of quantitative easing, balance sheet expansion, et cetera, is here to stay. I mean, we, we used to call it uh, unconventional monetary policy. The, 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 that phrase has disappeared from the lexicon. It is here to stay. And whether it is quote unquote successful or not is separate from the reality that it just is a thing. And I, I don't know that anything is going to change global central bankers' view that this is now the policy tool. The best thing that will come out of this, and, and I will repeat, the cost of living crisis for any number of people. Bloomberg had an article, CNBC had an article about people making $100,000 a year and struggling with bills. The Wall Street Journal podcast just had somebody on. It was a, just an awful podcast to listen to a, a, a person who's struggling with the increase in food and rent prices. This is a real thing. But from the central bank standpoint, I don't know that it's going to change anything. You can work down the balance sheet if you can be successful and get the, and I, by the way, to be clear, I don't think the balance sheet's going anywhere near the 4 trillion that it was pre-COVID. It's, it's probably gonna get down at best to 7 trillion, 7.5 trillion. I mean, it's not, you know, there are technical reasons for why they can't go any lower. If you can do that and not have, this is the soft, another version of the soft landing argument. If you can do that, the Federal Reserve will, will deserve a, on the back end of an awful mistake, tremendous kudos. All right, let's go back to Butters because we like to talk about Butters here. You mentioned him earlier from FactSet. And, and again, we track his earnings insight blog. And he had a stat a couple weeks ago that, you know, over the course of the year, generally strategists overestimate S&P earnings by about seven and a half percent or so when they come down over the course of the year. And so here was a, a tweet from Urian Timmer uh, from Fidelity. He is a past guest of this fine podcast. He said, earnings slide, question mark. This was from yesterday. The 2023 growth estimates is, is now flipped into negative territory, down 1.1%. This is likely gets worse before it gets better. Typically, the estimate comes down by about 800 basis points. So that implies earnings growth of around negative 5% for 2023. So Dan, my question is, and you just cited this earlier, that at about 18.4 times forward with where the S&P is right now, we're basically at the five-year average. And if you look at the last few years and say we're in and around $200 in earnings, right? And last year we were down 20%. 
This year, the S&P is already up 7%. Look where rates are. Look where inflationary inputs. It just seems like something is out of whack here with all those metrics, assuming that 800 basis points or 7.5%, whatever it is, overestimate, and we are going to have a negative year in 2023. So you talked about the S&P 500 or investors or the stock market usually sniffs this out. This seems a bit different right now, considering where rates are and where valuations are relative to the five-year period. I often answer questions with two things, but I'll do it again. Uh, just a simple observation. It is so rare. And this every year is a new spin of the roulette wheel, and we have to acknowledge that. But it is so rare to have back-to-back down years in the S&P 500. We haven't had it since the 2000s bear market when we were down three years in a row. And if I remember correctly, before that, you have to go back to 73 and 74. So in the last 40 years, let's say 50 years, you've had two episodes where stocks have fallen in back-to-back years. That means nothing other than a simple observation that it's a rare occurrence. On the EPS side of things, the biggest understanding problem I've had is one of the most important inputs into any model to determine PE ratios, in my opinion, is interest rate and inflation volatility. And the level of volatility that we've experienced over the last 12 months is completely incompatible with a PE ratio of 18 or 19 times. It's just not a thing. If you had told me at the start of 22 or halfway through 22, that you would have the level of volatility in the treasury market and inflation that we had, I would have thought the PE ratio would be in the 10 to 15 range, not in the 15 to 20 range. I have been and am dumbfounded. <laughs> Guy seems to like this. Well, no, because yes, and Danny's got something, but y- yes, I mean, the bond volatility, it's nuts for two years now. Anyway, please continue. I had nothing else to say, except I, I had I known that in advance, I would have thought for sure you were talking about a a 14 multiple, something like that. I I think historical analogies have to be careful here because we're in a different environment today than we were, let's say, 30 years ago. And so regime change comes into play. I wouldn't always look at 50-year averages, let's say. But certainly I would have thought 14, 15 at, you know, and and, and listen, admittedly, at the October low, and I talked about this on CNBC with Wapner at the time, the multiple had compressed by about a third, which is about what you do in bear markets. The stock market was down 27% top to bottom. That's about what you do in bear markets. Not exactly, but good enough for government work. You could have, I did, and, and could argue that the bulk of the work at the October low had been done. That's not to say that you wouldn't go down another 3 5% or so, but the people looking for a 10% additional drop in stocks, sure, maybe. But but I think people of a certain age, uh, I think most of us on this podcast, are, although Guy, I think, is maybe 20, 25 years older, um, a boy. I, I, most Danny and I, I think a lot of people are accustomed to thinking about equity bear markets in, to the tune of fifty percent. Obviously, that's what '08 was. Give it more. That's what two thousand was. But that's not historically what bear markets are. They could be twenty-five to thirty-three percent. And and at your bottom in, in October, you had done a lot of that work. And I, I feel myself sounding very bullish on this podcast, which is not my intention. But I think you could have justified at the time flipping some of your bears. I will say, Dan, the one thing that confounds me among many is that the shit names keep rallying again. Like, you know, I think you had put out a tweet, you listed, what do all these companies have in common? There's like 15 of them, heavy, short interest, et cetera, because that tells me that the retail investor is still very engaged. And I don't think you can truly have, you know, a bear market that kind of cleans things up while that is still occurring. So I'm looking now in real time, the S&P is up 7.4% year to date. Uh, the most short basket, most followed by everybody, is up 25% year-to-date. And that, non, that group of non-profitable, unprofitable tech stocks is up 30% year-to-date. So most short up 25, non-profitable tech up 30, 
S&P ups called seven and a half percent. So that's a dramatic outperformance. That's not at all what Solus does. And so I'm not going to opine on the specifics, although some of those names may end up on our radar. But as a general rule, I think this is more technical than anything else commensurate with that technical stuff we talked about before about the 200 day moving average. I mean, I know that you guys talked about this yesterday. Tesla's up, uh, you know, your favorite stock is up 65% year to date and NVIDIA's up 50 something percent. There's been a, a really risk on feel to this entire thing, but it gets back to, to what we've all been talking about, which is the equity market is clearly buying into the soft landing scenario. And I, I think there are impending damages to economic variables that impact profits from a Federal Reserve hiking up to five, five and a quarter, and then leaving it there. And I just, I don't think 85% of the investing public has no idea what a 5% interest rate regime for nine months, if that's what ends up happening, looks like. And there are odds that they have to cut by the end of the year, but that is a different environment than what we saw certainly in the 2010s when most of these guys came of age. Dan, cracks about my age, notwithstanding... (laughs) It's been great having you join us here on the tape. Thank you so much. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.